Hello, and welcome to one of a series of podcasts exploring key issues or areas of interest in impact evaluation today. We hope you enjoy the podcast, and please don't forget to tweet your thoughts at hashtag ImpactFrameworks. Thank you for listening. Hi, uh, my name is Chris Carrigan. I'm the lead for patient and public involvement for DataCan. DataCan is the health data research hub for cancer, a UK-wide partnership that is unlocking the power of health data to improve cancer. Uh, Our aim is simply to improve care and outcomes for people with cancer by making high quality health data available for cancer researchers and health professionals. And my role is to lead the patient and public involvement role within that. Hi, my name is Mark Taylor. I work for the National Institute for Health Research, but I'm also uh, a long-term multiple sclerosis sufferer for over 19 years. My name is Trish Greenhush. Uh, I am a GP by training and I'm also Professor of Primary Care Health Sciences at the University of Oxford. So welcome everybody to this podcast, uh, which is of particular interest to me in the role I play within DataCan, which is to ensure that the patient voice is involved in everything that we do, including recruitment planning, prioritisation, approval, reporting, in fact every part of the programme. Um, an aspect which is becoming much more to the fore as we see more patient involvement in many areas is the role of patients in defining the impact of research and from a different angle, how we actually measure the impact of patient involvement in research. So to help cover some of these things, I will, maybe I'll ask uh, Mark to start with. Um, Mark, how, how have you seen the role of patient involvement or PPI as we might keep calling it in research develop over the years? Thank you. I, I think it's it's something that we've been looking at for quite a while. Um, and it's a question that was first posed by Simon Denegri, uh, who used to run Involve, uh, about uh, two or three years back, uh, when uh, his group was uh, working on and introducing the National Standards for Public Involvement in Research. And one of the questions that that posed, or that work posed, was, well, what is the impact of PPIA so far? The problem with that was that we we couldn't really work it out without creating some form of baseline, without doing a historical dive uh, to what had happened in the past and and what people had expected when NIHR was set up and pushed PPIE as such a large part of what they did. Uh, So a couple of years ago, I contacted Trish uh, in Oxford and asked her to, to look at a historical review of uh, PPI policy uh, from the NIHR perspective. Trish, what uh, what did you find when you did that review? I don't, I don't want to kind of oversell this, but I, my team, uh, as, as Mark says, my team were contracted um, by NIHR to do a sort of deep dive into the history of PPI as the NIHR uh, got involved with it. And I think they did incredibly well. It's it's largely a very positive story. Um, this was taken seriously right from the outset of the NIHR. And in fact, it doesn't it doesn't begin when the NIHR began. And then that's about 12, 13 years ago, I think, maybe a bit more. Um, it, be, it began more than that, um, that, that even before the NIHR was set up in the UK, uh, the, the Uh, research funders and research organisations in this country were very keen to involve patients and the public in research. And I remember in the days when we were allowed to go abroad to give talks, 
uh, people would come up to me and say, you know, you guys are doing PPIE really well in the UK. So, so I would say, uh, although I have published stuff that is critical about the way PPI is done, uh, and there are certainly many, many ways in which we need to improve it, broadly speaking, I think this is a very, uh, very positive story. So, um, as we've already heard, in recent years, there has been a framework of standards, but I think way before that, there's there's been some excellent research on PPI. Um, Sandy Oliver's work springs to mind. I think that was published in about 2004, where you know they were looking at the literature, interviewing um, patients and the public about their involvement, uh, and very quickly picking up a number of themes. Uh, such as, for example, tokenism, representativeness, whether or not the processes were truly democratic or whether someone had sort of picked their favourite patient who was um, assumed not to be uh, or assumed to be trusted not to not to rock the boat to sit on committees. You know, what do we do about conflict? What do we do about the patient who who really believes uh, something very different from what the researchers believe about about the illness, for example, or do we want to um, do we want to just pick patients who share our views on 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 the topic? And so, that, you know, those sort of issues around conflict and democracy uh, loomed large right from the beginning. But I think what's happened in the last uh, ten fifteen years is that uh, th there has been a systematic. Um, kind of arrangement of those various themes and issues. Uh, and there's now quite a good evidence base on it. And, and I suppose the last thing I'll say before I, before I hand back to you is I think there are, you know, two broad perspectives on this. One is a, a rather technical approach, which says, look, here's a list of things you've got to do, and we want you to tick all the boxes to prove that you've done it. Uh, and there's, if you like, a more critical approach, which is to say, we need proper power sharing uh, between uh, patients, service users, members of the public and researchers. Uh, and that's going to be uncomfortable. Uh, and it's not just a question of how many bums on seats you've got when you when you have a PPI meeting. So I think that that tension uh, between the sort of raw techno bureaucratic approach and the what I would call the democratic approach, I think is, is, is a fruitful one to explore. That's interesting. And you talked about the, the systematic arrangements which have been put in place. Do you think there's a danger that they may become tick box because if it's systematized, there's a series of checks you go down. Do you think it could actually have a increase the danger of PPI becoming too tick boxed? Well, I think, yes. And I think that's why people sometimes roll their eyes when you talk about PPI. It's a box that everybody has to fill out whenever they write a grant application. Um, and in some ways, it, it can become a bit mechanical, like there's another box with the information governance in it, and it feels as if, oh, goodness, this is just making work for me. On the other hand, that slightly bureaucratic, um, visible dimension of PPI actually does prompt you to think hard about it and do it properly. And I think it also manages to weed out research teams who really haven't thought about it at all. But yes, I think we do have to have, um, a, you know, we have to reflect on on the meaning of the the, the bureaucratic tick boxes. It, it, it doesn't um, 
it's not through the tick boxes that you get good PPI. Of course, it's through the relationships and it's through actually caring about it. On the other hand, I'm not as critical as of the tick boxes as, as let's say, I used to be. I think I think there's um, a dynamic tension, actually. Uh, uh, I mean, I, I tend to call it uh, managerialism. Uh, when something becomes managerialism, uh, that's when you've got the problem because people do it without thinking uh, about it. Um, and I, I think the, the issue is is not just tick box on the side of academia, the applicants for funding, uh, but also on the side of those who um, manage the funding. There has to be an ethos on both sides of the fence. Uh, so funders who uh, come up with a system which is uh, there's going to be a separate part in an application form that will get filled in. But they themselves not having an understanding of what PPI means in practice as an ethos, I think that by definition becomes managerial and backfires as well. Uh, the PPIE should be an ethos for a funder. Uh, it should be something that, that drives the funding forward. Um, there are many terms like patient empowerment, which sound like a cliche, but they have real meaning. Uh, and if you forget the fact that patients feel empowered, um, and feel included um, and feel part of the process, then no matter what you do, no matter what your best intentions are, it will be a tick box and it will remain so. If we're talking about impact measures generally, you, you can actually measure a tick box. It is something which is easily measurable, which is a potential risk. What are, what are the other measures of impact that you've come across from the NHR side, Mark? It's a, it's a question that I get asked in general anyway. Uh, how do you measure impact? And, and I get I give the same answer every time, which is you don't measure it, you describe it. And there may be some numbers to back up that description, but you describe it. So when you're looking at the impact of of, of anything, PPI notwithstanding, is you're looking for case studies of, of people who can describe what the impact has been from them. So if you're looking at the impact of, of patient involvement in research, you need to have the, the, the patient story. You need to have... Uh, uh, evidence that patients do feel that research has moved for them, that the process has changed for them, that the outcomes of research are more relevant for them. So um, NIHR, like a lot of other funders, do an awful lot of uh, uh, patient involvement engagement work. It is a serious part of our DNA. Um, from uh, having patients involved in, in peer review, in, in, even before that research prioritization, um, it is part of, of, of everything that we do. Uh, but I would always caution against trying to measure it in terms of numbers, because then that adds to the potential of it becoming a tick boxing exercise. It's a tick box to apply. It's a number you put in when you do your monitoring. That's not necessarily uh, showing any form of cultural change or any ethos change. Yeah, it's interesting when you talk about the patient stories, because the experience I've had work with patients in some of our areas is they're very, very keen to tell their stories about how they found taking part in the research for them. and. By and large, I think I'd agree with you, Trish. This is seen by people to be a broadly positive thing. There's a, a separate angle which springs to mind, though, which is how do we measure the societal impact of patient involvement in research rather than just to the individual patients being involved? Is that something we need to think about? The majority of patients who are involved in our research are involved not just for themselves and their family member who might have a particular disease, say, but at a more abstract level, they want to bring the patient slash lay voice more generally. And uh, I, I mentioned earlier this, this whole question of, you know, 
are they representative? And, you know, you know, like take me, you know, I'm a white middle class person in the early 60s type thing. How can I represent all patients with whatever illness I might have? I can't at one level. I'm not statistically representative of men, for example. On the other hand, uh, in my experience, patients who are on steering groups, who come to patient discussions, which are often online these days, they do try to bring in not just their own experience, but the experience of others with the illness, uh, because they're often in touch with other patients. They don't just know their own story. They know other people's stories. Um, they might have a parent or grandparent with the same condition. Uh, they might be involved in a patient, um, a national patient forum or something like that. So I think this idea of the individual patient versus the societal um, element, it, you know, they're on a continuum. Uh, and and that's actually one of the things that that I love. I'm reminded of when I used to sit on NICE, one of the NICE appraisal panels, and I used to have patient reps on those. And the patient rep would have, you know, they, they, they would have lived experience of one or more diseases, but they were actually very interested in whatever disease and drug we were talking about, saying, well, what's the impact of this for the patient? Do you see what I mean? And, and so I think the... I think patients bring something much richer than sometimes we give them credit for. I also think, actually, if you if you take into account that we we live in a, a multi morbid world, that you know, from my point of view, you you're rarely going to be talking to somebody who has just one condition half the time. It seems so. You know, I I have multiple sclerosis, but I have two or three things that are wrong with me on top of that. Um, I, I know from, because Trish is right, you know, if you have condition A, you tend to know a lot of people with condition A. Uh, you know, I know a lot of uh, people with MS who themselves have two or three other conditions at the same time. So most people have a broad experience. Um, there, I think there needs to be more work in, in, in ensuring uh, that patient, uh, patients involved in research are as broad as possible in that sense. Um, but I, I do think we need to take into account that that individuals are rarely self-siloing, if I can use that terrible term. Um, and, and by definition, they are constantly reaching out to their tribe because that's the way that everyone lives, even even in today's pandemic world. There's, there's another issue here, um, which uh, something Mark said raised for me, which is that lived experience of one illness can often transfer to another one in that we're all working in the same healthcare system. We're all, uh, you know, as patients uh, trying to access the same system. So, for example, I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, years ago, um, my dear departed father-in-law was had been called for a diabetes check, and he was told to see the nurse, and he couldn't believe that that having been registered with a GP practice for 20 years, they would they would fob him off with a nurse. So I did a bit of work and said, well, actually, you know, in practice, nurses are pretty good at looking after diabetes. And he went along and, um, you know, developed a wonderful relationship with the practice nurse who, guess what, was, was uh, at least as good as the GP. The point is, when he got his next illness and there was a nurse-led clinic for that, he was falling over himself. He couldn't wait to go and see the nurse because he already knew that nurse-led chronic disease management clinics uh, were a good thing and he would be well cared for and well supported uh, and he could ask the nurse anything he wanted. So the, the, the lived experience of, of 
one chronic condition, it kind of it teaches you things about the system that can transfer across to another chronic condition. Um, and and the, the same, of course, is true. You know, if you if you're a parent and you know your child has had an acute illness. Um, there will be a similar approach to another acute illness. So I think we shouldn't be too disease focused about this. There, I think the illness journey can be very similar with, with different diseases. Clearly, if we're looking across the health system, what we need is impact for all. Do we think our PPI itself is impactful enough on reducing inequalities by being overly exclusive to types of patients who get involved, i.e. are we open enough, open enough as a PPI function to all types of people from all types of backgrounds? One of the really good things about inequalities in PPI is even though we haven't got it right, we sure know that it's a problem. And I think the NIHR is very reflexive about it. And I think researchers are very aware that the low-hanging fruit uh, it is not the only place we need to go when, uh, quote, doing PPI, unquote. What I would say is that in my experience of trying to reach uh, seldom heard groups, seldom represented groups, hard to reach groups, if you like, although I know that's not a popular expression, um, is it is labor intensive. Uh, it can involve more conflict, more kinds of conflict. Um, and it's also more expensive. It's it, because it's labor intensive. Um, it involves a lot of groundwork building relationships. And that is sometimes, uh, that sometimes sits awkwardly in economic models of PPI. So when you're doing the budget for your application, um, you know, people say, well, yeah, you've got to get hold of so and so many people. And, and people have an idea about how much that's going to cost. But there's quite a lot of hidden costs in reaching, for example, the homeless, the housebound elderly, um, people who may be a bit confused because they'll need a helper, all that kind of thing. And I think one of the things we need to do is resource PPI efforts with um, seldom heard groups because they cost more. I think that's that's an excellent point. I, I have to say on behalf of a colleague of mine at the NHR Centre for Engagement and Dissemination that I was uh, rightly told off by using the term uh, hard to reach uh, and was told actually they're not hard to reach, we're just hard to work with. Um, and I thought that that's, that's a fair point. We, we don't make it easy for ourselves because of the resourcing issue. Um, and I think a lot more work needs to be done on, on how we broaden our horizons and make ourselves easier to work with uh, overall. Um, uh, I'm not suggesting we have to beat ourselves up about this, but there are, there are potential techniques that could make it easier or that we should at least investigate whether they might help. Um, uh, but even that I don't think will be perfect. There will be certain groups that will always be um, or will always find us uh, difficult to work with. We just need to be aware of that. Mark, Trish mentioned the, the point about resourcing the PPIE efforts um, sufficiently, which I would wholeheartedly agree with. If we're going to, whenever I go and ask for more money for anything, the first question I get asked is, so what are the results going to be? So if we were going to go and ask for more resource to put into a wider, stronger PPI, 
we're still going to be faced with the fundamental question is, well, what impact is that going to have? You clearly put some thoughts into impact measures. How would you begin to answer some of those questions? Well, firstly, I, I would I would always be hopeful because if you look at how things have changed over the past 10 or 15 years and how the resources have begun to flow or increase, I, I think there is a, a evidence that over the past few years, uh, money, further resources actually gone into to the PPI work from an NIHR perspective. And, and I, we're not the only funder to put uh, money into this uh, and resources into this. Um, although I've always been very proud of NIHR for the way it's made uh, PPIE is central to its mission in, in that sense. I, I think um, there isn't an easy answer to saying, give us more money uh, or what's the impact straight away. As I said, to work out the impact of any particular uh, investment or any particular activity takes time to build in uh, those impact measures to be actually able to tell the story, which is why one of the reasons we started to look back one of the reasons we asked um, uh, Trish and her colleague Jill in the first place to actually do the historical perspective, one of the reasons why we're building on that, uh, working with Oxford and Sheffield to do a further piece of work to um, uh, interview a set of patients um, in London, Oxford and Sheffield about what their historical perspective is, how PPI has changed their involvement with research so that we can build up that, that evidence base uh, from a qualitative basis. Um, but it, it will take time. Um, but I'll, I'll say again, uh, pushing, pushing and pushing has over a period of time increased those resources and we shouldn't stop now. Uh, yeah, I suppose if we're, we're still talking about inequalities, I think we should, because I think this is, a, this is the $64,000 question, I think. Um, one of the approaches that I have found really helpful is to build partnerships at an organisational level, particularly with the third sector. Um, we did a study a few years ago uh, looking at different minority ethnic groups and, and their um, reasons for not coming forward for hepatitis C uh, screening and treatment. It was NIHR funded programme grants. And one of the things we did was we worked with different uh, ethnic charities uh, quite small ones sometimes locally and we'd go along and say look you know we'd like to get the uh, views of these uh, these people uh, how what what how can we work together and different groups had completely different ideas as to how they might work with us and what was great was to have a bit of flexibility in the funding so that we could say yes we can fund for example, one of your members half a day a week to go around and visit people, or we can fund meetings in your community venue where people come for their lunch clubs or whatever. And it was the flexibility and use of resources so that we could go to groups who were used to dealing with particular groups um, and they would be able to say, this is how we think you should do it rather than us go along with it with a firm plan and say right we'd like to get 15 people to come along at nine o'clock on a monday morning or whatever which which isn't the way to do it no i i agree i think that this is this is the long-term relationship building this is strategic partnerships um this this is um uh, far more than as trish says just say let, let's get x people together and have a cup of coffee uh for a meeting it, it's it's much more long-term planning it's much more about the infrastructure of PPIE as well. And again, uh, without trying to uh, raise the NIHR flag, 
over the past few years through uh, NIHR funding streams like the Biomedical Research Centre, there has been some resource put in to create um, a PPIE infrastructure, the Centre for Engagement and Dissemination, um, on top continuing to push the, the ethos of PPI, which uh, from my point of view is extremely important to stop it slipping back to managerialism. Um, it, it's, it's a long-term investment that needs to be kept up um, because by definition, then when, Chris, when you're asking for more money next year, the year after, people understand instinctively, hopefully, why it's important in the first place rather than just, just having to make a basic elevator pitch, even just to get someone's attention, which I think was the problem if you go back 10 or 15 years ago. One slightly different angle in terms of learning from PPIE, because everything we've talked about so far, I've been thinking about the positive sides of PPIE. Have either of you come across any negative aspects uh, of PPIE in, in the world you've been inhabiting? I think there's certainly been awkward moments, without any doubt, there's been awkward moments. Um, you know, I'm, I'm remembering particular meetings, particular data sharing sessions where we, we'd invited patients and the public to come and, and, you know, we would present data. And, you know, most invited patients very interested one or two seemed bent on wrecking the whole session but i'm not sure that's a problem with ppi because that happens in senior management committees as well there's one one individual who's behaving badly so i think you know let's face it folk are very variable and some people have a bad day um i think there has certainly been uh efforts to involve and engage the public that haven't worked particularly well. But I would say almost all of those have provided important learning opportunities. So I can give you an example, if you like. When I, I, I worked for 30 years in London and, and quite a lot of my time in the East End of London, and we used to work a lot with, uh, particularly with the East London Mosque, but with faith-based groups and organisations uh, in areas of high um, social uh, deprivation and, and, and ethnic diversity. And the East London Mosque was amazing. They had relationships with all sorts of, um, you know, health and care organisations, educational organisations, you know, and there were lots and lots of things going on. So you sort of go along there and say, we'd like to, you know, for example, do some eye screening or find out people's views on eye screenings. Oh, yeah, come along, you know, let's, you can, we'll just sort of um, announce it uh, during, the, during the Friday service or something like that. So it was all part of it. Anyway, when I came to Oxford, I thought, well, let's start building relationships with some of the mosques here. Um, and it didn't go down too well. And it was only when uh, I went along and said, well, this is what we'd like to do. Um, and, you know, who can I work with? Uh, that I realised that the reason why it worked in East London, but it wasn't working the same way in the place I went to in Oxford, was because there'd been 20 or 30 years of relationship building of particular individuals uh, working very hard to overcome problems of trust, to make sure that the money followed the work, uh, to feed back the results of research studies to those organisations so they didn't feel that they were just getting people to give an armful of blood or, you know, all those kind of uh, uh, problems. 
and that when you start again in a different town or city to start building relationships with, um, for example, faith groups, you have to realize that it's going to take you perhaps five years before you get to first base. Now, you could say it was a disaster the first time we tried it, or you could say we learned an important lesson the first time we tried it, and we now know that we've got to work more slowly, we've got to work extremely diplomatically, uh, and uh, we've also got to um, understand a little bit more about um, different faith organisations in, in the community, uh, and, you know, some are more, some are keener than others, and some are better resourced and set up than others to interface with academic groups. Does, does that make sense? So I think from failures we can learn more strategic lessons. I suppose is is what I'm what I'm uh, trying to get across. Yeah, I think it's a really good point, and, and maybe one thing to follow that up is if I am a new researcher coming into the start of my career. Um, what I'd like to do when I want to get involved in PPI is to learn from what's worked and equally learn from what where the failures have been. Where, what would you be, your advice be to a, a young researcher coming in saying, I'm interested in doing PPI within research. Where do I go to for a start point? Is that something that, that the NIHR support directly, Mark? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of information uh, available through the Centre for Engagement Dissemination. Um, any large university hospital that has a biomedical research center will have a PPIE infrastructure. Um, so there is a lot of evidence, uh, sorry, there is a lot of resource out there. Um, even if you are a, an early stage researcher um, applying for funds for the first time, um, NIHR has a system, system called the Research Design Service, which are regional offices. Uh, which will help you apply for NIHR funds. And actually, they'll also help for the smaller charities as well. And they will have PPI uh, experts. But on top of that, the simple answer is find the patient group you wish to work with. So if you are an MS or interested in MS research, uh, talk to the MS Society. See who they have that you can talk to directly. Uh, I, I, I'm sure I can speak on behalf of all people with, with MS. We're a friendly bunch. We love to have a chat. A cup of tea and a chat about research um, um, is a fantastic thing for us. Talking from the sort of research perspective, so if, so if I bring my patient hat on and um, I'm approached by a researcher to say, would I like to get involved in patient involvement in this research? Maybe I'll start with Trish. Convince me it's a good thing to do as a patient. As a patient, um, well, it's certainly a good thing for somebody to do. Um, I think the, I'm trying to remember the name of the study, a bit, actually probably better not to name it, but um, where it came before an ethics committee and they really thought that what they were going to do was a liver biopsy on every patient every three months for 18 months. Uh, and it, it actually took a patient to say, hang on a minute, have you ever had a liver biopsy? And is there any other way you could get the data apart from sticking something that looks like an apple corer into my fleshy liver every three months? Um, I mean, it's, it's a slightly comical example, but I think the one of the things that patients do is they do a reality check 
um, with, I mean, they talk about things like, um, you know, how many times am I going to have to go to the hospital? How many times am I going to have to find a car parking space? Are you going to pay my car parking fees? These very practical things, because most of us would be very happy to help in research, but actually the practicalities can be prohibited. So, so those very common sense and practical questions. And so coming back to your question, persuade me to get involved. Look, if no patient gets involved in the design of research studies, they're going to be designed around the researcher's convenience. Um, and they might be, you know, first of all, rather painful and uncomfortable, as in the liver biopsy example, but also very practically, um, you know, awkward and, and time consuming for patients. And so just having patient involvement will will make research easier to do. But but also I think there's a there's a more kind of metaphysical thing here, which is to say it's it's your illness. The this whole thing is about uh trying to improve um you know either life expectancy or quality of life or something that that should be helping patients. And it, and if if it doesn't, then um, there's something really badly wrong. Actually, can I tell another story? Can I tell my favourite story about patient involvement in research, um, which I, I think is relevant? And many, many years ago, there was something called the Clark Review of Research Priorities in, um, in Research. And I was asked to co-chair the diabetes section of that. And this must be 25 years ago. And we were really forward thinking in this, we decided that we'd have some focus groups of patients to help set research priorities. This is way before this was fashionable. Um, so we didn't get it quite right. We, we had meetings of clinicians first to get their priorities. And then what we did was we had another meeting of patients um, to feed them what the clinicians had said. So, so, so we, you know, there was a way to go. Anyway, the clinicians had said that behaviour change would be a really good thing to do research on in diabetes. Uh, so we fed that back to the patient groups and the patient groups said, yeah, behaviour change would be fantastic. And it was only when we asked them to expand on that that we realised that the clinicians thought that the patient's behaviour needed to change, but the patients thought that the clinician's behaviour needed to change. And we did actually recommend two different lots of behaviour change research, one on patients and one to change the behaviour of the doctors, frankly, to make them a little bit less um, paternalistic, I think the, the issue was. Uh, so that's just another example of why get involved as a patient, because, you know, if not, you're going to end up with clinician-centred research. types of research or the way we're conducting research there's a lot more being done now by using uh, what we call real world data real world evidence which is routinely collected healthcare data rather than data collected in clinical trials uh, and working with that is more difficult to get uh, obviously you can't talk to patients who are particularly involved in that you're talking about a general use of patients data um, does this make it even more important that PPI is involved so that we have people represent who can represent those whose data we are using, even if it's not their own data? Yeah, no, I'd, I'd suggest it is actually, uh, especially if you're talking about journal data sets and, and having patient representation to make sure the right parts of those data sets are actually used. Uh, the lived experience to say actually that's representative and that isn't. Um, to actually help shape 
to actually help shape the research question itself based on that general data. I, I think um, that's extremely important. Uh, if you look at the work of uh, the James Lind Alliance on research prioritization, for example, um, to have a patient viewpoint at the beginning of the process is extremely important, uh, even if they're not being involved in the research itself, if that makes sense. So, so one, maybe one last question, unless there's anything we've missed. One last question I've got for, for both of you. Um, in terms of PPI and the impact of PPI, what would you like to see most looking forward in this area? Well, I, I think from my perspective, I, I'm very, very keen to, to see how we involve patients in impact assessment itself. So NIHR and other funders involve patients at all stages of the research process now. Um, as I think I've, I've already said, from uh, pre-application, through prioritization, through application, through monitoring. Um, but I, I'm not sure we really have engaged with patients in the impact of research itself. Um, and I, I am very keen to find ways of doing that. Um, now, you know, I, I, myself and some colleagues have sat down and thought about some models we might want to use, um, how we might want to engage with, with patients uh, beyond the simple, let's have a patient representation on any impact assessment steering committee. Um, how we, we might do this. And we do have a paper coming out soon that will discuss the use of online citizens' juries to uh, be able to gain a broad viewpoint uh, from patients, um, even the ones who find us hard to work with, uh, so that we get a better understanding of what, the, what they view the impact of the research that we undertake is. Uh, so from, from my point of view, we need to keep on the ethos side of PPI, but we need to expand what we do to better understand how patients can inform um, and be part of and be empowered to do uh, impact assessment of the research that we fund. Yeah, I mean, I would strongly support what Mark said there. I, I think the other uh, thing that I would like to just pick up on, you just earlier on talked very briefly about the James Lind Alliance, and I think it's worth giving them a plug. Uh, this is something that I was a, a little bit sort of semi-sceptical about before I, I got to know them and got involved with some of the things they're doing. But this is an excellent organisation. Um, the idea is it's about research priority setting. It tends to be disease focused, but it doesn't it's not not all of their initiatives are disease focused. So uh, mostly it, it's people who either suffer from a particular disease or have got a family member with it. And there's a call for uh, setting new priorities. And then there's quite a structured process of summarising what the evidence base is already and what ongoing research studies are doing. And then saying to patients and to clinicians, actually, where are the gaps? What new research do we need to do? Um, and I followed, there's one going on in my department for heart failure. I think it's probably finished now. There's another one on rare anemias, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, and there's some interesting stuff being done on multimorbidity. Now, this is great because it, it can completely reframe the priority areas uh, and funders can then look at the, what they call the top 10 lists. You know, these are the top 10 things that, that patients uh, and, and clinicians say um, need to be researched. And that might be matched with uh, a particular funder's interest. So I think this is really good. It's like really upstream patient and public involvement. I'd, I'd like to see more of that, really. I'd like to see um, a, a source of funding 
for uh, running James Lind Alliance partnerships to set research priorities. I actually think that would save money in the long term. Uh, to be honest, it, it, it's not a huge leap of the imagination to see research prioritization repurposed in some ways to look at impact as well, rather than ask the question, what research would you like to prioritize uh, to certain patient groups or certain key uh, patient and public groups? To actually ask people to start to begin to think about what they would hope to see as success of research programs in certain areas. Um, and I think it's not um, impossible to see uh, groups brought together uh, to help us understand what we should be looking for in 5, 10, 15 years time to see whether research really has changed. If you get uh, people with condition A together and sort of say, well, if this research is successful, what I'd like to see is A, B and C and see whether A, B and C actually has happened 10 years down the line. Um, rather than the dry impact assessments, which which can look at um, case studies which are meaningful to uh, those in power. Um, that's probably the wrong term. Um, but those who run things rather than those who are affected by things. Um, and I, as I said, that the, the research prioritization model, the James Little Alliance model is, is an excellent one, but it could be retuned. We could take it and use it in different ways. And what's it going to take for that to happen then, Mark? Uh, well, we go back to the, the old question about resource. Um, James Lind Alliance uh, doesn't work for free. There are fantastic people who work within that particular structure who uh, need uh, to be paid. Um, they do what they can with the money they've got. The idea of using citizens' juries, even online ones, uh, there is a cost to that. Um, and actually, for that sort of thing, I think there needs to be a certain amount of research first to see whether actually it works, whether it's relevant. Um, it's a fine idea, but going from fine idea to let's roll it out, I think would be a bit of a risk. Uh, so finding resource to actually research the model um, and see under what context it might work, I think is the next step there. I don't know what Trish feels. Yeah, no, I agree. Totally agree. I think it's it's quite difficult um, because you you don't know um, different what they call JLA PSPs, the Priority Setting Partnerships, are funded in quite different ways. You know, some of them are funded. Well, you, you, I mean, you guys know. Um, some of them are funded, for example, with um, biomedical research centre money. Some of them are funded from charities, uh, and they have very different histories and very different um, kind of path dependencies. So, I, I, I love the fact that they're all rather different, and each one plays out differently. Uh, on the other hand, I do. I, I've heard from an awful lot of people who've been involved in them. The worst bit about this was getting the funding and you're not talking about that that much funding uh, and i think it would be really good to encourage a wide variety of funders to put up some pump priming money to do the priority setting exercises before they then put several million into a research program that might actually not uh, be a priority i think you both made excellent points uh which which might bring us to a natural conclusion. I think this, for me, it's clear that we're in this for the long haul. PPI takes a long time, as you both described. I think there are some really solid things we could look at in terms of the next steps in evaluating the impact, and demonstrating impact of PPI, not least following models such as the James Lind Alliance and others, which could be adapted. Um, I would suggest that anybody who's listening to this podcast, um, maybe has a look at the James Lind Alliance website, um, educate themselves about what it does and think about whether that model could be used 
to evaluate impact more generally. Unless either of you two have got anything extra to say, I'm wondering whether that might be a, a reasonable time to close the podcast. Uh, I would just like to say that if people want to have a look at the Centre for Engagement Dissemination, the NIHR website, they'll also find some very useful resources on that. And if people want to tweet about the podcast, Mark, is there a, a, a hashtag they could use? Yep, it's hashtag Impact Frameworks. Okay, thank you to Mark and thank you to Trish and thank you to those for listening as well. Thank you for listening to this podcast. It's one of four in a series exploring different aspects of impact culture. Please return to the website to discover the others. And don't forget to tweet us your comments and questions to hashtag Impact Frameworks. Once again, thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.